Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Today's podcast is titled Trauma and Meaning. Recorded in 1993, UC Irvine professor Roxanne Cohen-Silver and Case Western professor Roy F. Baumeister examine the ways in which victims are affected by the traumas which befall them. It is suggested that trauma's real impact is not primarily the event itself, but the degree to which the victim's belief are challenged by the trauma. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Hello, my name is Arlene Stilwell. The topic for today's discussion is trauma and meaning. Your discussants will be Roxanne Cohen-Silver, Associate Professor of Psychology in the School of Social Ecology at the University of California, Irvine, and a world-recognized expert on coping with trauma, and Roy Baumeister, who is the Smith Professor of Liberal Arts at Case Western Reserve University and the author of the recent book, Meanings of Life. Thank you. Nietzsche once wrote that people are quite willing to suffer. All they ask is that someone give them a reason to suffer. Now, in, in saying this, what he was uh, suggesting is that the same event can have a drastically different impact on people uh, depending on uh, the subject of meaning that it has, and that something that seemingly would cause a problem or suffering may be, become acceptable simply by being put in a different context uh, and by being interpreted differently. Now, as I understand it, recent research in uh, the past few decades in social sciences has really confirmed the wisdom of his insight uh, insofar as that uh, when something bad happens, when there's a trauma, how the person interprets it uh, makes all the difference. Uh, now, uh, uh, identical events uh, can therefore have radically different uh, effects on people uh, depending on how they're interpreted and on what sort of meaning that the person is able to put on it. Uh, Roxy, you've uh, probably studied more different kinds of trauma than uh, anyone in the field. Uh, would you say that that's a fair statement, that the, uh, the meaning makes more of a difference uh, than the event itself? Yes, there's a great deal of variability in how people respond to the same trauma. Also, it is very clear that events that to the outsider would look at to be exceedingly traumatic might not be experienced as traumatic by a particular individual. And also, a relatively trivial trauma could have a major impact on a person. The example that I like to give is that the young woman who was beaten by some young men in Central Park a couple of years ago, labeled the Central Park jogger, appeared to have, at least by her grandmother's account, rebounded back very quickly and began jogging again in Central Park and seemed to be coping quite well and rather that, that soon. And was an astonishing trauma. I mean, she was left for dead and she was in a coma for a while. Yes, she was in a coma for a long period of time and she seemed to have not suffered dramatically from both her physical and her emotional scars. And also, I once read in the book, The Love's Executioner, about an elderly woman whose purse was snatched in a grocery store parking lot. And she described the purse snatching as having a major impact on her life. It prevented her from going outside anymore. She felt that her entire world had been stripped, that she felt that she couldn't trust anybody anymore. And so here's one relatively minor trauma that is, is as minor as a crime can get, I guess. Yes, and she really was devastated by right. it. So we see a great deal of variability both within events and across events in the kind of impact that they have on people. 
So just knowing what happened to the person isn't enough to assess what what's subjectively going to come after it and how well the person can cope and recover. Absolutely. And what the person will feel like. I think for about a decade or so we've known quite clearly that there is a great deal of variability in responses to trauma mm -hmm. and that this challenged some of the early views that there was a universal reaction that everybody was supposed to be experiencing mm -hmm. particular response and that these responses were not only supposed to be universally experienced, but also go in stages of discrete mm -hmm. response. It no longer appears that that is accu an accurate characterization yeah, of how I think people the data come. you've come up with in the last couple of years have pretty shown that pretty well questioned or, or, or demolished that view. That, mm -hmm. uh, Instead, people go through very different uh, sequences to events that, again, seem identical right. uh, to the outsider. Mm -hmm. uh, indeed, your, your, your classic paper on, uh, on incest survivors, uh, uh, I think, drove that home as much as anything uh, in, in terms of the impact of the event. I mean, incest is certainly a terrible thing to happen uh, to a child, but it's no longer having any practical impact on your life 20 years later when you were interviewing these, these women as adults. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not affecting you in any pragmatic way, and yet it was still very uh, much a problem emotionally uh, yes. and in other respects so that what it meant to them and how they looked at other people and looked at themselves and so on particularly how they looked a at huge effect particularly how they looked at themselves in reaction to other people many of these women reported feeling somehow different they felt some um, barrier between themselves and others as a result of their experience mm -hmm. also there were current experiences in their adult lives that were triggering memories of their incest experience, in particular having sex as an adult, seemed to trigger memories of mm -hmm. the childhood experiences. Mm -hmm. So the question then is, is why? <laughs> why are these differences? Why can somebody get over being beaten to the point of death and recover and, and go along with life where somebody else who has a purse snatched in a parking lot mm -hmm. Uh, is devastated for, uh, you know, these are the extremes, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. uh, what accounts for those? Uh, as I understand it, and when I was reading your work and the other research and, and working on Meanings of Life book, um, my sense was it, it wasn't just the event, but it's sort of the hole that it tears in your, in your world, and that mm -hmm. people have their beliefs about who they are and what they're like, uh, and, uh, and when some event happens, it, it may challenge those. And mm -hmm. so it's not just figuring out how to deal with the event. You know, you, you have a car crash and you got to call the insurance agent. And mm -hmm. so there's those problems there. But that part you can get over. What, what determines the long-term impact is the difference it makes in how you view the world. And uh, so does mm -hmm. you have a different view of driving and uh, whether you can drive and how other drivers will act. And, and, and so that's... Uh, those things. I guess uh, Janoff Bullman's uh, mm -hmm. probably articulated that as, uh, as well as anyone, um, saying that uh, people have several basic assumptions about the world, mm -hmm. uh, including, uh, first, they think that they're a good person, uh, they believe that the world is a nice place to live, that it's basically benevolent, mm -hmm. and, and they believe that there's fairness in the world, and so that by being a nice person, they can expect nice things to happen to them. And when you're a victim of a trauma, it demolishes those assumptions. And so even though you may cope and you know mm -hmm. your stereo is stolen, you get a new stereo, but what you can't replace so easily is your sense that the world is a safe place or that you are the kind of person that deserves to have nice things happen. Is this, is this consistent? Yes, with I, I think that one of the major effects on uh, of trauma on people's experiences is the way in which they shatter 
previously existing views of the world. Uh, many people hold what I would argue are unrealistically high expectations for the, mm -hmm. the likelihood that they're going to go through life unscathed by trauma. And so when something hits them that they were unprepared for, it often violates their basic assumptions about themselves in, mm -hmm. in relation to the world. And so one of the coping tasks, per se, is to rebuild one's assumptions mm -hmm. that, that may have been shattered by the experience. Right. That's interesting. We know Shelley Taylor's argument. That was her, her, her recent book, and so on, and said that having these exaggeratedly favorable views of the world, you know, thinking you're better than you are, thinking the world is nicer than it is, mm -hmm. or exaggerating the good thing, these are really adaptive in, under, <laughs> when times are good right. because they make you feel that much better and right. uh, sort of overestimating how good you are and how mm -hmm. safe and everything. That uh, emotionally, that's very pleasing. Mm -hmm. But I think what, what your work and others suggest is that the, it also raises this vulnerability yes. and that when something does go wrong, uh, in a sense, by pushing yourself up higher in an inflated fashion, you have farther to fall. Absolutely. And it's harder to accommodate those. Mm -hmm. uh, yesterday you were talking about people who just have the sense that the world is a mean and rotten place. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so when something bad happens, it doesn't challenge their view of the world, it just confirms Right, this. right. In fact, I was going to say that one of the things that we have hypothesized to explain the variability in reactions to the same trauma or to look at rather minor reactions to major traumas is that in fact for some people these events do not shatter their view of the world. That it is not always true that an event will violate a person's previous assumptions. It may be that a person holds a particular religious or philosophical perspective that allows in an event like this mm -hmm. and that in fact they can't they're they are not thrown back so to speak they don't experience any state of disequilibrium between what they mm -hmm. previously viewed and what they what occurs to them at the time and i think that one of the ways in which we explain people's um, minor responses to major traumas is that the the event hasn't really violated their assumptions about the world it's not necessarily holding a view that the world is a terrible place that's not violated. It could be a strong belief in the afterlife, such mm -hmm. that the death of somebody is a j just a vacation from when somebody is going to ultimately see the person again. Mm -hmm. In fact, we had someone in one of our studies report that the death of their child didn't seem to them to be very traumatic because they expected, they just sort of perceived the child as on vacation and they were going to see mm -hmm. him in a rather short period of time based on a longer time frame than mm -hmm. those of us who mm -hmm. uh, are here on earth see. Well, that's, that's, I guess, one of the big benefits of some of the strong religious views mm -hmm. is that they do manage to help the person interpret mm -hmm. uh, particular events and they're very elastic. I mean, the, the logicians and so on uh, will often complain about some of these religious systems saying, well, they're they're too flexible and slippery and mm -hmm. you can't pin them down. But that's their strength in terms of helping people cope because whatever happens, it doesn't really undermine. If you have the strong religious faith, it can, can stand up to that. It's not simply, though, just being more religious. It's not simply a continuum mm -hmm. that the more religious the person is, the better they're going to adjust to trauma. I think our, our own research suggests that that is not the case, that that pe as many people report becoming, having their religious beliefs intensified after a trauma as report 
having their religious beliefs shattered by a trauma. Isn't that amazing? So, I mean, and yes, one does hear likewise about people who, who read or experience things and say, well, I can't believe in a God anymore. He never mm -hmm. would have allowed this to happen. Right. Um, so it's, it's the particular type of belief right. that the person has. If, in fact, the religious belief uh, allows in the experience of trauma without devastating the person, some mm -hmm. religious viewpoints say that God is punishing the person. Yes, and or so testing is another one. Testing. So yeah. a religious belief that if a person holds that kind of belief and a negative event occurs, mm -hmm. they might feel guilty as opposed to feeling that the child is on vacation. Right. I've heard, uh, I forget if it was in your work on the sudden infant death or some others, people thought, well, they had premarital sex, and so mm -hmm. this was mm -hmm. this was divine punishment for it. And, you know, medically that's, that's completely unfounded. Mm -hmm. But within the context of that person's faith and that belief, they were able to handle this, this trauma of having their mm -hmm. child die. Mm -hmm. And... You know, in a somewhat unpleasant way of saying it was their fault, was their punishment, but it made sense, and their views of the world were right. able, were, 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 were not challenged. So, right. again, they have the practical problems and the emotional impact and so on in the short run, but the longer-term recovery is probably right. better because your whole world isn't demolished. Yes. So what we have here is sort of the event poses a challenge to the person's a general beliefs. A potential challenge. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a okay, challenge, potential challenge. Uh, and either the... Uh, the worldview has to stand up and reinterpret the event to, to mm -hmm. square with it. Mm -hmm. Or in other cases, the event is too strong and really undermines and breaks down some of the assumptions. In which case, then the person is, is in the more difficult uh, phase of having to rebuild a new world because you can't really go on without any understanding of what the world is like, with just believing that your world is chaos. Right. I mean, this is terribly depressing and demoralizing and it's, um, mm -hmm. it's just hard to get yourself to, to do anything, let alone uh, pursue a career and raise a family you know, <laughs> if it's chaos. So, in that case, uh, people have to reconstruct. And there's this sort of down and back up uh, structure to, to suffering and coping, and that uh, down in the sense of deconstructing meanings, and that the, the, in these cases, the trauma will tear down these basic assumptions. And there's this middle phase when the person is in this meaningless, numb uh, sort of condition. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, you see the time frame changed here too. Because, you know, when the world makes sense, you can sort of understand the past and future and, mm -hmm. and religion that goes to all eternity. So it's right. a really broad uh, interpretation of the world. Once that's demolished, you're sort of living here today and you're going to get up and make a sandwich. And, you know, next week is as far into the future mm -hmm. as you can imagine. And so people in this, in this state are sort of very narrow in their time frame. And what mm -hmm. they have to do then is rebuild uh, a broader set of assumptions and a new understanding of the world that can somehow accommodate this, this thing. That's and it's not a very easy task. Right, yeah. Uh, there are many ways in which people can try, probably, uh, to deal with this. One of the things that we see in our subjects is a continuing attempt to process the event, to think about the event, talk about it, try to make sense of the event through um, perhaps both voluntary activities mm -hmm. as well as what seems to be involuntary thoughts about the event and so so as to in the sense that what they're doing is not, not just focusing on the event but they're trying to find a context for yes. it right to rebuild yes. an, a broader understanding that can coexist with what happened to them there there seems to be an adaptive way in which people can rebuild their views of the world and sometimes what what we see um, what i would consider to be the most adaptive kind of worldview that allows in 
that, that allows the benefits of the positive views of the world as well as allows in traumas is to say things like the world is a good place but not always. The world is fair but mm -hmm. not always. The world is generally fair but mm -hmm. not always. So that the person then gets a more differentiated view of the world, a less rigid view of the mm -hmm. world, one that allows in gray rather yeah. than just black or white. That probably explains some of those really seemingly paradoxical cases where people blaming themselves actually helps them cope better. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Where they say, well, it's my fault, you know, I made an error in judgment, I shouldn't have driven that fast, or mm -hmm, I shouldn't have walked mm -hmm. down that alley, or, or whatever. And, and you know, we think, oh, don't blame yourself, no, 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 that's, that's, that's the social support mm -hmm. reaction. But it allows the person to say, the, worst, the world is a safe place and a predictable place, and just, I did something stupid and I paid the price, right. but now I can go back and live in the world as long as I don't do anything stupid again. Right. Uh, nothing else bad will happen to me. I think that I think that that is a very adaptive way to respond to an event. Uh, is to somehow place it in a context where your entire view of the world is not negative, but that you can see how bad things can happen sometimes and not always. It's it's really a much more differentiated viewpoint. What clinical psychologists mm -hmm. call you know, not a very rigid way of thinking. Right. Yeah. Much it's more a, flexible way right. of thinking. Well, after a serious trauma, if you're going to go on believing the world's a good place, you have to get more, <laughs> more differentiated. I mean, the, right. The, the, yeah. the old simple optimism and rose-colored glasses mm -hmm. sort of view, that just doesn't quite work anymore. And yes. So you have to handle it to some degree. It also, uh, it also seems that not everybody is successful at that. Some people mm -hmm. leave a trauma with a worldview that is continues to be rigid and not flexible, but happens to be neg negative, a sort of... So these would be like maladaptive ways. I would that. say it's, it's maladaptive. It's seeing the world as a malevolent place rather than a benevolent place, mm -hmm. and seeing, one, seeing the world as basically unfair rather than generally fair. We certainly have seen that in some of the subjects in our studies, that they seem to come out of the trauma and respond to it in a way in which they don't trust anybody anymore, that they don't trust themselves in relation to the world, that yes. they don't see people yes. as basically good. Right. Now, last year, I published this book on unrequited love. It's called Breaking Hearts. And so, I mean, there's a, a small trauma, but it's big to the people involved. I mean, it's not like having a, being maimed or something. But uh, you fall in love, you give your heart to the person, and then you're brokenhearted. Um, and many do make it into a positive experience and look back, but there were some who did just what you're saying here, mm -hmm. the maladaptive coping, and then they say, well, I wasn't going to trust anybody else, or right. men are bad, or women are bad, right. or, uh, or love is too dangerous, and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and they don't want to take a chance. And so, changing for the worse. Interestingly, uh, women were more likely to report this kind of changing for the worse mm -hmm. uh, after mm -hmm. a broken heart than, than men. Um, mm -hmm. And so, one gets more skeptical, more hesitant, and mm -hmm. uh, you were saying it's maladaptive in that it prevents you then from, from the positive experiences and the happiness. You know, you really can't have a good <laughs> love experience right. unless you go for it. But it, it does adapt it is in terms of protecting you from further Absolutely. Uh, heartbreaks of that kind. Absolutely. So it, it is an adaptation that, that has some reason, but, but, but has a significant cost. Yes. Maybe, yes. maybe costly adaptation would be better than, than maladaptive. Maladaptive, but, yes. I, I agree yeah. with you. I agree yeah. with you. And then that's not all. That doesn't exhaust it either, right? There are also people who sort of get stuck in the yes. uh, the middle phase. They, their their world, their beliefs about the world are broken down. The world doesn't make sense anymore. It's chaos. They live in this sort of day to day 
here and now, dull, numb kind of short-term life, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they can't break out of it. Right? Uh, this is my research on suicide. Uh, that seemed to be the people who, who, who ended up killing themselves or attempting to kill themselves were the ones who somehow got stuck at that, right. that intermediate phase that ideally, you, know, you go through this, and it's not ideal, but uh, <laughs> inevitably the world breaks down, your beliefs break down, you have this dull, numb, uh, relatively meaningless phase, and then you slowly start to build up, again, these, these beliefs, adaptive or not so adaptive. Um, you start to make sense of the world in a broad way, and you resume thinking again. Mm -hmm. But for some people, they weren't able to do this. Whatever happened uh, with the suicide, it was usually something about themselves that mm -hmm. was so bad and that they just couldn't face the implications. They couldn't rebuild a positive view of themselves, mm -hmm. accommodating with whatever they had uh, uh, done wrong, or whether it was a failure in love, well, no one will ever love me, or uh, the, the, the stereotype cases of the uh, uh, the Wall Street crash and the men who lost all their money and mm -hmm. their careers jumping out the window to kill mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they, there isn't enough to rebuild there. And so they're stuck in the, the narrow, right. uh, mindless phase. And, and the mind doesn't tolerate that, as far as I can tell. People can't really go through life like dogs and cats or whatever, uh, just living day to day hour. They want to rebuild and start thinking more broadly again. And every time they did that, it would just bring back the anxiety of the uh, the bad feelings and yes. the demolished assumptions. I think also what's happening for these individuals is that they're stuck on a view of the past. They're stuck on, they're perseverating about the past. We saw this in women who had been childhood victims of incest, they're now adults, and they still seem to be perseverating over and over again, asking why it happened, why did their father do this, why didn't their mother protect them, over and over again on a continuous rumination about why did it happen, and they can't yeah. make any sense of it, they can't rebuild their assumptions, they can't, they, they seem to be right. really stuck in this perseverating rumination yeah. processing phase. Yeah. Yeah, when I, when I started reading Suicide, it was, was for the meanings of life. I thought I'd learn a lot about the meaning of life, by what, what uh, caused people to decide they didn't want to live anymore. But it didn't really tell me much about the meaning of life because it isn't a rejection of your whole life. You know, by the time they get to that point, they're so narrow. Right. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're so much stuck on this one event in the past, and so mm -hmm. they're trying to shut it out by just staying in the very narrow present, mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. in the here and now. Mm -hmm. and just like I said, you know, get, get up and have a sandwich and go for a walk and, right. uh, uh, and, and so that, and that's an unpleasant state too, especially given that periodically there are doses of anxiety whenever your mind starts to think. Right. And so if they couldn't keep the lid on and keep themselves from see, from not, th keep themselves from thinking, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then they would start to think of killing themselves as a way to make the anxiety and the other unpleasant things stop. I have to say in my study of incest survivors, we call them, they, these were adult victims of, they were adults that had been childhood victims of incest. We had about 80% of the women report having attempted suicide at least once. Oof. And so they were, they were stuck, I think, very much what you're describing in this state of trying yes. to understand why it happened, trying to rebuild their assumptions, not being successful at it. And I once, uh, for several years, actually ran a group for uh, peer support group for incest survivors. I was the professional that was sort of mm -hmm. sitting in to try to guide mm -hmm. them along. And I, week after week, heard these women asking, why did this happen? Why did my father do this? Why did my mother not stop him? 
over and over again. And I remember one day just saying to these women, what if there is no answer? <laughs> and mm -hmm. they were dumbfounded. They couldn't even respond to me. It was mm -hmm. as if they had never considered the possibility or it had no, that it had not been comforted to yes. consider the possibility that maybe there was no reason yes. for this. Maybe there was no meaning in this event. Right. Oh, isn't that interesting? Uh, I, I found that kind of stuff, you know, in other contexts, again, working on, on meaning, people just don't want to accept the idea that maybe there is no answer. Mm -hmm. There has to be an explanation. There has to, it all has to make sense. It all has to fit together. And the idea that just there's there's no meaning uh, to some uh, some event or even right. that, that the whole world doesn't really make sense. It was very deeply disturbing to people that the, the mind just seems to crave meaning. And uh, my sense was that trauma or suffering really stimulated that that urge to find meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, and mm -hmm. so people are driven to this. Uh, lots of observations. One is that uh, novels and books and everything deal a lot with suffering and uh, the, the idea that that stimulates uh, a particular craving for meaning. I think that the literary critic Leslie Fiedler once wrote that uh, nobody's been ever to make a good novel about a happy marriage. <laughs> you know, bad marriages are great <laughs> stuff for novels. I mean, you can make meaning, you can analyze and explore the nuances forever. But a happy marriage is just, just too dull somehow. And so the, the need to interpret and to make mm -hmm. sense of it. And pain research, the same thing. I mean, there are people who just have chronic pain. And for some, there's just no explanation. And and these, these people really suffer over it. They mm -hmm. really want to have an explanation, even if they can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, just to have a label, they know what, what causing it, somehow that comforts them. But the same pain and the same hopelessness, permanence of it, uh, if they just, well, I don't know what it is. You know, your back's just going to keep hurting. Mm -hmm. um, that's just so profoundly upsetting because, again, like I said, right. what if there is no meaning is, is a dumbfounding idea to people right. who are in suffering. They right. want to get through and find to make sense of it eventually. But, you know, I, I was trying to argue to these women that after 20 years of searching for an answer that wasn't forthcoming, it that it perhaps now. it's it's not a very adaptive thing to keep looking for, yeah. that there really may not be reasons for all of yeah. the terrible things that happen in life and particularly those that seem very unfair. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you made one of the most profound comments, I heard you speak a couple of years ago, one of the most profound comments that, that stuck with me and everything I've read since then or come across as relevant has confirmed that. You said that, you know, when something bad happens, there's good coping and bad coping and mm -hmm. good, cope, good coping is the people who are looking forward to the future, mm -hmm. bad coping is people who are looking back. Mm -hmm. uh, toward the past and toward the event. And the more they seem to be hung up on the past, the worse uh, they are in terms of getting on with life or the chances of, of being happy. Right, and right. I, it really does seem to characterize those people who seem to come out of their experiences with a positive slant or more mm -hmm. seem to be more resilient, seem to be more adaptively functioning, are individuals who do not forget the past. We see no evidence for people just being able to say, oh, it happened, uh, you know, I'm now going to move on with my life. It, that, that's not what characterizes long-term responses mm -hmm. to stressful life events. People think about these events for decades. Uh, perhaps with less emotional impact, mm -hmm. but they still think about them, but they can now move forward but, with yeah. their lives. They've, yeah, it, they well. accept that it's happened. Yeah. They not, are not necessarily resolved about the right. fact that it's happened. They don't necessarily feel that they've recovered from it, but they are able to look to focus on their present and future experiences mm -hmm. as opposed to just simply 
perseverating over the past, those individuals who seem to be really troubled, really distressed for a very long period of time are those that are stuck thinking about, ruminating yeah. about, trying to make sense of their past, trying to fit their experience, yeah. their negative the, experiences the, the into their... too. I mean, they, the, the absence of the future was one very strong defining feature mm -hmm, for them. Mm -hmm, I mean, mm -hmm. they were somewhat hung up on the past, but they were trying to blot out the past, right. hiding the present, but there was no future uh, that they could imagine. In fact, even like a sentence completion test, they wouldn't even make up verbs. You wouldn't even use verbs <laughs> in the future tense. Uh -huh. And the future was just not there and any kind of push they couldn't imagine that. Mm -hmm. And so that looking, either looking backwards or just trying to keep your eyes shut so as not to look backwards, mm -hmm. both mm -hmm. of those are long-term problems. And this, this too is the, the tragedy of the victim's role. I mean, we're, we're in the middle of writing this book on uh, uh, the victim's role and how people get trapped in it. And there are many pressures, you know, lawsuits and mm -hmm. other things where you have to continue to, to you know, there are benefits to continuing a victim. But the victim is a backward-looking role. Absolutely. The victim is defined by something that happened in the past. And uh, here's an example. If, if you were going to testify in court uh, about something that happened four years ago and, you know, you were the victim and you said, well, uh, it was pretty bad then, but uh, I'm fine now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the jury isn't going to give you your multi-million dollar award. And right. Instead, you have to say that this thing has destroyed my life and I haven't had a good night's sleep since then. Well, in fact, uh, I've done a fair amount of research on incest. And one of the things that I learned very early on is that women who've experienced this, and most of the research is on women, although we mm -hmm. have no reason to believe that it only occurs to right. young women, yeah. but the women do not want to take the label of victim. They take the label of survivor. So it's incest survivors mm -hmm. and that they feel that they have survived this trauma. Very few people who are uh, aware of these um, different ways of the different phraseology will use the term victim in the presence of mm -hmm. cancer patients and uh, incest, incest survivors, mm -hmm. people resist the victim. Some people resist the victim role. Mm -hmm. uh, and probably with good reason, because mm -hmm. if you're going to identify yourself as a victim, it means essentially that you can't really be happy. Right. It's, a, it's not compatible with getting on with your life and moving mm -hmm. toward a positive future, mm -hmm. which, again, as you're saying, that's probably the defining element of, mm -hmm. this, mm -hmm. of a positive, positive adjustment and mm -hmm. really <laughs> getting some pleasure and uh, mm -hmm. satisfaction and meaning out of what's left in life. Mm -hmm. um, now, we've talked a little bit about rumination, uh, and I think that was one thing that struck me about the work you did on incest and so on, was that uh, you know, these people are thinking about this and searching, that, that that's what they're doing, is trying to make sense of it. It's a, a search mm -hmm. for meaning aspect that mm -hmm. drives, when I mean, you think of, you know, why is somebody ruminating over something that happened uh, years ago, or even in some cases happened to uh, ancestors, you know, mm -hmm. there's a, like a large-scale uh, oppression, victimization. Um, and... Uh, you know, the, the rumination has a psychological function, right, of, of looking for meaning. Yes, it's it's not always voluntary, though. I mean, one of the things yeah. that's clear is that it's, in, for many people, involuntary, disruptive, intrusive in their day-to-day -day experience. Um, yeah, ruminations like are... To stop thinking about these things. Yes, and, it, and it's not so simple as to just say, I'm not <laughs> going to do it, right. I'm not going to think about it anymore. These ruminations seem to be triggered by a variety of things. They could be triggered by, well, for example, in for parents whose infants have died, they they tell have told me that what triggers ruminations of their baby are things like the day of the week, the time of the day that they used to feed the baby, 
um, driving by a cemetery, certain sounds, certain songs might trigger ruminations. In fact, I, in one of my studies on widows, uh, one of the women in our study said that she was particularly uh, reminded of her husband anytime she saw the color brown. It reminded her of her husband's shoes. And so when she saw, for example, a brown table, yes. she would immediately start thinking about her deceased spouse. Wow. So we do know that these ruminations are, um, are intrusive for some people and are disruptive and tend to be involuntary. That's not to say that some people don't make a conscious effort to think about right, yeah. to think about it, but, but they the minority. What I also think is true and important to clarify is that these things do continue for decades. And in most of my research, I've seen ruminations about it. A traumatic event occur for for many years. Decades. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's a rather dismal, uh, <laughs> a dismal bit of news. Well, if in but. fact the ruminations have less of an emotional tone to them, then it's not so terrible to think about it. In fact, some of we did uh, some research with elderly individuals who reported that for some t sometimes the ruminations made them feel good. Sometimes they had pleasant thoughts. Hmm of their deceased spouse. It wasn't always that they were traumatized by remembering certain things, that they, it sometimes gave them pleasure, made them feel at peace to, to think about okay. the person. So in terms of uh, the, the trauma keeping popping into your mind, uh, immediately after it'll be associated with a lot of emotion, but the emotion wears off it uh, appears as a general to. rule, whereas the mental well, not, it doesn't always wear off for the individuals who are stuck, as we were describing right, before. Yeah. It doesn't seem to, to wear off. But, 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 but for at least they are separate, the mental and the emotional We, we seem to see that. We seem courses. to see that. However, people who are most distressed seem to be ruminating the most. And okay. we, we do see an association between intense ruminations and intense distress. It's not okay. clear that we can tease it apart so clearly. <laughs> yeah. But at least, well, at least to some extent, at least we know there are lots of people who will continue having these these thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, without necessarily having a wave of, of distress and anxiety mm -hmm. yes. and unpleasant emotion for years yes. afterwards. You can remember the event. Um, and so the emotional part tends, not in all cases, but tends to recover of its own. The mm -hmm. mental part, what determines whether they stop ruminating or not? Is there some way of solving it or resolving it or? It's very hard, I, I, even though I've studied this for about 10 years, I, I don't have a clear sense yeah. of exactly how it happens that a person who's thinking about something all the time turns a few months later to rarely thinking about the event. Uh, the only explanation that I can give, although people aren't able to report it very accurately, what's happened, but I suspect that they've come to some satisfying resolution of their disrupted view of the world, that they've brought it to completion, so to speak, that they've, mm -hmm. that they've made sense of it, even if it's to say, even if making sense means there is no sense to it, even if it is that there is mm. no meaning for it, that that may be enough to shut it down, that coming to a satisfactory um, place mm -hmm. with, with understanding how it's happened even if you now we had several people in our study of parents whose infants died of crib death who said there is no sense to be made and that seemed to be enough for them there were those lucky people who were able to say that and not uh -huh. not be 
troubled by that conclusion. Uh-huh. So some kind of, the rumination seems to be linked to some interpretive work, which- I, I think so, I think so. Which can be brought to an end. I, uh, we don't know quite how or why. Yeah, but. I've seen ruminations really as a means by which people find meaning or make sense of an event. It's the means through which they do it. They go over and over it again, maybe come to the conclusion that it couldn't have gone any other way, that it couldn't have happened any other way, that there's really nothing that they can do about it. And it's time to then move forward in life, not to forget the past, mm -hmm. but, but to move forward. Yes, and that's, that's the best hope of getting out of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's, <laughs> that's a nice uh, sort of closing note that uh, is trauma. It's not the event itself, although it may be terrible and you know, practically one does have to deal with the practical consequences, but often that's only a small part, that mm -hmm. the real adjustment and coping is sort of the impact of the trauma on your whole beliefs about yourself and the world and other people. Mm -hmm. And that determines whether you have a lot to rebuild uh, or uh, whether you can adjust it, handle the problem and move on fairly rapidly. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess as good an indication of any is whether the person uh, either remains stuck in the, the here and now, the numb state, which uh, is, is highly unstable and highly unsatisfactory, mm -hmm. or goes on as a long-term victim, mm -hmm. continually looking back, continually groping, continually struggling to try to make sense of this and try to rebuild how to understand the world in light of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, or, in the happy endings, uh, such as they are, are the people who uh, do manage to make some sense of the trauma and then turn uh, their eyes back to the future, uh, rebuild the sense of, you know, a new adaptive way of understanding themselves in the world, mm -hmm. uh, and rebuild that around, uh, or at least accommodating mm -hmm. uh, this event, but having having a future uh, that can enable them to go on and uh, hopefully to be happy and uh, adjusted again. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.